So, again, we've been walking through the last part of Exodus, uh, and so we're going to wrap up this morning. We have come to the final verses of Exodus in Exodus chapter 40. And so in this series, I hope you've been encouraged to see just how amazing and relevant this Old Testament book actually is for us today and how it all points directly to Jesus. Uh, if you haven't been able to join us for this series, I want to encourage you, you can go online and um, check those out at risenchurchvb.com. Uh, it is a powerful uh, book. It is an epic story. And again, it is all about Jesus as the entire Bible is. And so this morning is going to be no different. We, we began Advent by lighting the candle of hope and then the candle of God's faithfulness. And then this morning we've lit the candle of joy. In Psalm 16 verse 11, it says, you make known to me the path of life in your presence. So get the imagery. You make known to me the path of life. So, so there's this path. It's like you've got all these paths. Sometimes there's weeds everywhere. There's, there's all kinds of different directions. Maybe there's wilderness on every side, but there's this path. And it's like, where do I go? How do I move forward in this life? And the psalmist here is saying, you make known to me the path of life, right? And so he says this, in your presence, there is fullness of joy. So paths going everywhere, he's on the path with you. And he's saying presently, lean into me, right? In your presence, God, there is fullness of joy. Not partial, total, fullness. The imagery there is overflowing. At your right hand are pleasures forevermore. And what better to, way to celebrate joy and the joy of the Lord than with a bunch of kids singing about Jesus or ringing about Jesus, <laughs> right? Like there's something about children that kind of ignites this sense of joy in our hearts, right? I mean, truly, like it, it, Christmas is, is about celebrating the joy that we have in Christ as children of God. Say children. A lot of times when we hear the word children, we think like ignorant, naive immature. But the way that was used often in scripture isn't about their immaturity. It's about their trust. It's about their faith. It's about that sense of that they are vulnerable, but they recognize that they are protected by daddy and they run to daddy. And so there's this sense of this juxtaposition, this contrast throughout the scriptures and especially in Exodus that, that Christmas is about the joy of Christ that we have as children of God, not slaves. Not slaves, not hirelings. Not impressive gladiators even, trying to earn our freedom. Some of us kind of live like that. Like, you think of a gladiator, you don't think of a slave. They were slaves. They were just impressive slaves. A lot of times people approach religion as if, you're just trying to be a more impressive slave. And so what we see in scripture though is that we're called to be beloved sons and daughters. It's part of why Jesus makes it clear how much he loves children, even coming as a child. And so Mark 10, there are all these passages in the scriptures and I love this passage here in Mark 10 verse 14. It says, but when Jesus 
uh, saw it. So the kids are trying to come to him, and the disciples kind of stop him. They hold him back. And it says, um, when Jesus saw it, he was indignant and said to them, let the children come to me. Do not hinder them, for to such belongs the kingdom of heaven or the kingdom of God. That's a powerful statement. Think about what that means. Like, this is how he sees us. This is how he loves us. This is the kind of unconditional care he offers, and he calls us to receive it. And in order for us to receive it, we've got to receive it like children. Verse 15, truly, I say to you, just in case you're not getting it, he says, truly, I'm going to repeat this. Whoever does not receive the kingdom of God like a child shall not enter it. And he took them in his arms and blessed them, laying his hands on them. Again, Matthew 18, we get to see something very similar. Verse 1, at that time, the disciples came to Jesus saying, who is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven? So they've been arguing about this. If you look at that passage and, and you see that they kind of are going to go back and forth. Who's most impressive? Who's got what it takes? Who's going to be the guy that's going to be the greatest in the kingdom when you usher it in? They're not really thinking about it clearly. And Jesus is trying to rein his disciples in and teach them what it's all about. Verse 2, and calling to him a child, which would have completely wrecked their worldview at that point. He puts him in the midst of them and said, truly, I say to you, unless you turn and become like children, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. Whoever humbles himself like this child is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven. Whoever receives one such child in my name receives me. So, so there's also a statement about loving one another the way he loves us. It shows us the way he sees people. Like we're so quick to kind of look at people and try to get an edge up over each other, right? Especially in society, that kind of pride, shame spectrum thing, that kind of like comparative, comparison, locker room stuff, you know? And then he, he's trying to get us to see this world as he does and love this world with the, with the love that he has, and so it's a statement about loving one another the way he loves us. And when we do, we're literally even blessing him. There's a beautiful mystery here. And so this passage also, I think, perfectly displays God's love and wrath. His wrath and his love are perfectly on display right here. As Jesus holds these precious children in his lap there's this thing that seems to rise up in him. His protective nature starts coming out because his protectiveness is very much a part of his glory. And he says, but whoever causes one of these little ones who believe in me to sin or to stumble, it would be better for him to have a great millstone. A millstone was a two-ton two rock fastened around his neck and to be drowned in the depths of the sea. So soft hippie Jesus just kind of shifted, right? And he didn't shift. He's always been like this because we see his protectiveness. You see his love and you see his wrath. You see his glory, his goodness on display here. And so this Christmas, we have the opportunity to partner with and bless a wonderful organization who's tapped into the very heart of God for his people. And it's a, an organization called the Crisis Pregnancy Center. 
And so uh, they do a phenomenal job. It's called the Kime Center or Crisis Pregnancy Center. Um, they do a phenomenal job of loving on pregnant women who may be considering an abortion. And so they embrace them and they point them to Jesus and they help them walk through a very difficult season and what might otherwise be a very dark path that does lead to an abortion. And so many of you know um, or have known Sarah, Sarah Moses. Uh, she was a, a partner with us, and a, a, she is now face-to-face with Jesus. She's in glory, and she poured her spirit-filled heart out into so many women through this organization. Um, and I remember talking to her about how many children the Lord has used her to rescue from abortion. Um, and, and I remember just being like, this is a, we're sitting in a living room and, and just kind of being like, you've got all the kids that you've had a part in to, to save their lives. And she goes, oh, honey, I... I I don't do it for the children. I don't just do it for them. They'll be with Jesus. They'll be okay. She was got a southern accent. And she said, I, I do it for the mamas. Like she had this beautifully eternal perspective, which is very much in view as we speak, as she's in glory. And she left this beautiful legacy, though, in our church. And we want to provide this special giving opportunity for you and for us to bless the Crisis Pregnancy Center in her memory this Christmas. And so uh, if you would like to partner with us in this, as we partner with the Crisis Pregnancy Center, uh, you can simply text any amount. So we have our giving slide. Um, If you want to text any amount to 84321, anything given via this text so we can kind of track it, will be given, uh, will help us uh, in our gift to the Kime Center, the Crisis Pregnancy Center this year in her name. So it'll be a, a, an offering in her name as well. So um, that's something that is just a gift that we can partner in together uh, for God's glory. And I think, again, it's part of God's heart. It's part of God's heart in, in, in turning even the hearts of the fathers to the children. And we see that as a major aspect even in the scriptures. But again, Christmas is about God's presence, okay? And when I say that, I don't mean presence as in gifts, right? I'm talking about presence as in God with us. This is true joy. This is where pleasures forevermore are available to us in his presence. And we're, as we're about to see, this is the whole point of the book of Exodus It's about being drawn out of our counterfeit identity as slaves and drawn into our true identity as beloved children of God. And so as a roadmap for the rest of our time, we're going to take a big, broad view of the last five chapters in Exodus, and then we're going to zoom into the last six verses of chapter 40, which are the last verses of the whole book. And then we read them earlier. And so as we do, I want to look at three things that we learn from children about entering into the presence of God. Three things that we learn from children and are on display here in these passages about entering into the presence of God. Number one, we enter with expectation. Number two, enter without pretense. Number three, to enter courageously. So here's what I want you to get this morning. If you get nothing else, this is what I want you to get. In God's presence, there's fullness of joy. Straight out of Psalm 16. In God's presence, there's fullness of joy, which then begs a question. How do we enter his presence? 
And I'm like, what does that even mean? Like, you talk about God's presence. Like, isn't he omnipresent? Isn't he always present? Isn't he God? So is it, is it like he's here now, but he's not then? Like when somebody says like, I, man, God, you could really, God was really there. I was like, was he not there? Is he not here now? Because you can't hide from him, right? Where can I go where he's not there? You can't. He's omnipresent. That's what that means. So what are we talking about here? Isn't he always here? Or, or, or maybe is he ever here? Is there some special presence that's available to us? And if so, what's that like? Because it sounds a little intimidating. So for the past few months, again, we've watched as God's faithfully drawn his people out of slavery and into their new identity as his beloved people, and he set them apart for his holy purpose. And this leads me to the first thing that we learn from uh, children about entering into God's presence. And the first thing is to enter with expectation. This is a big part of Christmas. Like, remember, those kids, those children that we just kind of talked about here, when they come to Jesus, I want you to think about this. Little kids, they don't tend to just walk up to strangers. Right? I mean, especially when they're younger, they don't really, like, they're naturally pretty hesitant, especially with people they don't know, right? Like, even with Santa, if you're a parent, or if you're not a parent, you might think, like, all kids love Santa, they can't wait to get to his lap, they're like, yay, Santa, I can't wait, I'm gonna go to Santa, but then there's this, they get there, and they're, like, just stone cold, petrified, right? Like, there's this real fear and intimidation, like, trepidation takes over these children. If you're not a parent... It's a thing, okay, especially when they're young. And then you put them, you put them in you know, the lap, and like nine times out of ten, this is what happens, right? I always feel so bad for Santa when, the, when that happens. I'm like, it's okay, you're, you know, he's all jolly and stuff, that one. Um, but why do they do that? They're like, you're not my daddy right? You're some stranger. Even if they have the idea of being like loved by Santa, they have the idea of who he is in their mind, but it's still at the same time, it's like there's this tension there. And so what we see with Jesus though, is that they're even willing to go against what other people expect to get into his lap. It's the exact opposite. Like the culture of the time, it was kind of abnormal. It was not accepted for children to just run up to a rabbi, especially to be put in the lap, like you would be bothering them. That was kind of the culture. And so the disciples are even trying to push them away, and they're pressing through. Their parents are like, let's get them there, you know? And so this is this, they want to come to Jesus. And so what I see here is that even though the, 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 the disciples are kind of shooing them away, they're pressing in because there's something deeper going on here, and the children sense it. The truth is, is that the expectation of Christmas morning is actually a longing deep in our hearts for things to be made right. There's this sense that that man is the one that can make it right, and in his presence is where everything is at peace where I can be joyful, 
It's this beautiful shadow desire that we see everywhere at Christmas for all the bad to be undone on Christmas morning. It's the celebration that someone has come the night before, and it's the dawning now of a new day that's on display everywhere. In some ways, we live in the already and not yet of the ultimate Christmas Eve as we await the ultimate Christmas morning. With Christ's first coming, it's the ultimate Christmas Eve. And his second coming, when he returns, it's the ultimate Christmas morning. We live in between the two advents. We live in the already, not yet. And so Christmas carries this profound expectation. But the truth is, deep in our souls, we're not eager for gifts. We're eager for him. We're not eager for presence with a T, we're eager for his presence with a C. That's where our hearts are longing. That's what, our, that's what they're longing for. Kids, get this. When we're children, this, this clicks somehow. That's why they get so excited about the arrival of Santa. There's this shadow there of a real expectation of the arrival of our Savior King. It's the reminder that he has come and he is coming back. So God seems to think that Eager expectation is actually a really important part of meeting with him, of longing for the day that is, in fact, drawing near. So the last half of Exodus is actually saturated with this kind of expectation of God coming to dwell with his people. In fact, we're, we're given this account of God giving these detailed instructions for multiple chapters to Moses while Moses is up on Mount Sinai about how to build this tabernacle and then we're given the account of how Moses implements these instructions. And this tabernacle would be the place where God would dwell in the midst of his people. Moses was meeting with God on the mountain, but God is saying, I want to come down the mountain. I want to dwell with my people right in your midst. So build this tabernacle. <coughs> Excuse me. So God gives these detailed instructions, and then Moses, uh, we're given the account of how Moses implements these instructions. So we've got tons of scripture with the instruction, and then we've got even more about God, or about Moses implementing these instructions. It's all part of building the expectation as we're reading through it. I'm summarizing a lot, but I want you to see that the scriptures are intentional in trying to build expectation. There's so much anticipation. Moses even has to wear a veil because he was glowing after spending time in God's presence. And that'll preach by itself, by the way. Like, are you glowing because of how much time you spend with the Lord? Right? That's a whole sermon. And yet it's still limited. There's still a limit to the experience he has with God. But God's saying to Moses and to the people, there is more. I want more for you. Deeper access. The question really is, do you want more of him? Or are you comfortable to shrink back from the mountain, from the tent? Like, so, so this is, he's building his dwelling place. And that dwelling place, that tabernacle, it's laced with all of this imagery from the Garden of Eden. All these materials for the tabernacle are supplied by the generosity of the people even. It was all part of the plan. It's a principle that we see throughout the Bible as well as uh, 
just this, this sense of anticipation because there's a partnership in the establishment of God's kingdom on earth as the dwelling place. So God's kingdom presence upon the earth has always been resourced and catalyzed by the sacrificial generosity of his people. Like he doesn't need our money. He's the one who's supplied us with all that we have. He's the one that supplied the Israelites with all that they had. They were in the wilderness and in the desert. They had, they had already started to worship those things, but he's saying, hey, now those things that you had worshiped, I want you to take those and generously come together and build the place that catalyzes my presence and my kingdom going forth on the earth. And so just like the Israelites, God has preordained that his church advances through the faith of his covenant people. It's sacrificial generosity. That is our currency. I've told you before, that's why faith is the true currency of God's kingdom. It's not even about the amount. It's about the faith that's connected to the amount, to the amount of giving. Because it's discipleship, not just fundraising. That's how his church moves forward. It always has been. Like when people give generously, God leverages it for more than we could ask or think. And it's all a part of our expectation, even and especially on a local church level. Like this is the front lines of the kingdom. This is how he moves forward. So Moses puts these things into practice, all right? And all that sacrificial generosity and the gifts and the talents and the people come together. He, he, there are talented um, stone workers and there are talented people that are, that are carving things and they're bringing, they're sewing and they're, they're bringing their things together and they're constructing this tabernacle and then they, they create the ark and they, they, they create the holy of holies and the very manifest presence of God would dwell. And it's this, rising expectation, chapter after chapter after chapter. You feel it? And the truth is, a child's expectation for Christmas morning, again, it's rooted in this kind of longing. God with us. Now look at Exodus 40, verse 33. It says, and he erected the court around the tabernacle and the altar, and he set up the screen of the gate of the court. And so Moses finished the work. So Moses finished the work. This would be the blueprints, by the way, of the temple, which are the blueprints of another temple, which we'll get into in a bit. Then verse 34, then the cloud covered the tent of meeting and the glory of the Lord filled the tabernacle. So it's like the night before Christmas. Again, expectation, palpable, experiential presence. Moses asked God in chapter 34, please show me your glory on the mountaintop. But Moses and God both wanted to share that glory because God's glory isn't to be hoarded. When we experience the goodness of God, what are we then called to do? Invite, go and tell, say, come and see. So, so to take it down the mountain, to invite the rest of Israel in, and it seems now is the time. This is it. This is the return to a new Eden. This is the resolution to the fall that we saw in Genesis. Remember, the rest of the Bible hadn't been written yet. They're thinking this is all it is. I don't know what they thought. Maybe it was like a portal. Like you go through that tent and it's like, and heaven, right? That's not a crazy thought that they might believe that. It's definitely possible God could have done that, right? 
But what happens? Verse 35. And Moses was not able to enter the tent of meeting because the cloud settled on it. And the glory of the Lord filled the tabernacle. So all this eager expectation, because that's how the book is, is, is coming to a close. Like all this eager expectation, all this buildup, and now he's not even able to go in. Like why did God do this? Like is God just being mean? Like what's going on here? All that hard work, all that faithful obedience and waiting and longing, all of that is just to be left outside? And no, he doesn't get in later in the book of Exodus. This is how it ends. All of this, God desires to dwell with his people. That is so clear. His manifest presence has come down the mountain and yet full access is still denied. Again, we're given another picture of the already not yet here. His presence is here, but not complete, not in full. Why? That's the question. And that's actually the question that the entire book of Exodus leaves us asking. It's clear that he wants to dwell with us. It's clear that God is drawing near and drawing us in. His presence is so close. It's so near. And yet something is missing. There's a veil. There's a distance. God wants us to ask this question because it's the most important question we could ever ask. What is needed to enter God's presence? It's not hard work and obedience. It's not. Moses did all that. This very old man, my man was like in his 80s. He might've been 90s at this point. His very old man would have been exhausted carrying out all these instructions that the Lord had asked him to do, but he does it. And he does it with expectation and joy. But that's not what provides access to his presence. So what does? The answer is given up front in the very next book in the Bible, Leviticus. You didn't think you were getting any answers out of Leviticus, did you? It actually sets up the whole reason for why Leviticus is full of so many laws. Verse 1, Leviticus chapter 1, verse 1, which would be right, we're talking like they would have been conjoined. It says, the Lord called Moses and spoke to him from the tent of meeting. Now remember, he did speak to him from the mountain. Now Moses calls from the tent of meeting and he calls him and he says, speak to the people of Israel and say to them, when any one of you brings an offering to the Lord, you shall bring your offering of livestock from the herd or from the flocks. So what's going on here? You wanna meet with me? Like you really wanna meet with me? It's going to require a blood sacrifice. That's what's missing. Like the thing that separates the slave from the child is faith in the blood. It's what separated Abel from Cain and gave him favor in God's eyes. It's what separated Israel from Egypt and brought them salvation through the blood of the Passover lamb. And it's the same means by which all re-enter Eden and the presence of God to experience his presence. It requires the blood. It's all intentional. 
And it all blatantly points to Jesus Christ, Emmanuel, God with us, the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. This is the gospel, that God became a man and he lived the life we couldn't live and he died the death that we deserve to die and he conquered death in the grave and he paved the way to eternal life And it's an eternal life that doesn't just start one day when we die, but it starts the moment we place our faith and our hope in what he did for us at the cross and through the resurrection, he paves the way into the holy of holies. In fact, we see that the veil was split when Jesus died on the cross because the blueprints from this tabernacle were set up in the temple and the temple had a 70-foot veil, a curtain, three feet thick. And when he died, we're told that it split from top to bottom. You know what that meant? Holy of holies, access. Why? It's through the blood. This is Christmas. This is, this is what we celebrate at Christmas. It's not about our pride and impressiveness. It's not about our shame or failure. It's not about how hardworking or deserving you think you are of his presence or presence with a T. (laughs) It's not about what you think you should be getting as affirmation from God or from people or even from yourself. Listen to me. All of that just robs you of true joy and is only going to leave you with hollow anxiety. All of it. So again, the first thing that we learn from children about entering God's presence is doing it with expectation, a joyful expectation that he is the solution. It's at the core of their thoughts of the future. It ignites that joy because they expect to be met by a God who loves them. Do you? Or do you think that you've got to earn it? Because that's what steals the joy. That's what steals the expectation. Right? Do you expect to be met by him with open arms of embrace? If not, why? Because whatever the answer is to that, it essentially means that you don't think his blood is enough to cover. And you're putting it on you. This is the joy of knowing he is sufficient for us to enter in, which leads to the second thing that we learn from children is that they enter in without pretense. Like they don't come like, man, I deserve to be here, right? Kids are just like, Pick me up. Like there's just such a natural reliance. There's this vulnerability with children that they haven't really developed that self-sufficient facade yet. There's no real pretense. There's no real ego. Like my kids would never go into the woods alone at night, right? I don't know if you guys know that. or My, my, my oldest might try sometimes, but um, definitely when he was younger, he would ne- they would never, like that's a nightmare for them. To be left alone at night in, in a forest in the woods, that's a nightmare. But if daddy's there, It's a camping trip, (laughs) right? If daddy's there, it's a dream. There's a deep reliance. What's the difference? Presence, trust. It's how the children approach Jesus and why he says this is necessary for anyone to enter the kingdom. Every false religion of works-based righteousness or impressiveness completely misses this as if anyone could ever impress the creator of the universe. It's just arrogance, which is what God is in this fallen world. It's 
for us, we idolize our own works, our own abilities to impress God. And he's like, that's, guys, that's just filthy rags. Come to me as you are. I will clean you. I will wash you. Trust me. That arrogance is what got us in this fallen mess to begin with. It's just joyless, hopeless self-worship. But again, Psalm 16 says, in your presence, there is fullness of joy. At your right hand are pleasures forevermore. It doesn't say at our right hand there are pleasures evermore. That's important. It says those pleasures flow from God's right hand. The works of your hands will never bring you pleasures forevermore. They just won't. You see, in the Bible, the right hand often represents a person's works. So when Jesus is described as being at the right hand of God, throughout the New Testament, we get this kind of imagery. There are a lot of implications, but one of the implications is that Jesus embodies God's work, his finished work, especially at the cross. It is finished. It's already accomplished. Now come. His work, his hand we see his right hand. His, it's his hand that covers us. It's his hand that hid Moses in the rock and holds us. It's his finished work at the cross that provides our covering. It's not about what you have or have not done. It's about trusting in what he has already done for you. If you think that this is elementary stuff and you're like, yeah, I heard that. You preach this all the time. You're probably not paying attention to your soul in this crazy world. Because this is a ditch that pulls us to one side or the other at all times. And we've got to trust in what is provided for us. And what is provided for us is a child. And it's a call to be like children. And so th th this is not the end, though. Like, it's not just when we trust in his finished work, that's not where it ends. That's where it begins. Like, if you've been covered, if you've been washed clean by the blood of the lamb, if you're hidden in the tender, protective hand of God himself, then stop shrinking back from his presence. Like, lean in. Like, this isn't just weakness, okay? Like, this is true strength. Like, uh, Paul tells us in 2 Corinthians 12 that God's power is made perfect in his own uh, weakness, so he says, Paul says, when I'm weak, then I'm strong, because that's when he taps into this eternal strength and confidence that goes way beyond himself. And so this leads to the third thing that children teach us about entering God's presence, is that to enter courageously, right? When you think of children, you don't always think of courage, and yet the reality is they're so vulnerable, everything they do is courageous. Like, seriously, look at Proverbs 28.1. It says, the wicked flee when no one pursues but the righteous are as bold as lions. Romans 8, verse 14. For all who are led by the Spirit of God are sons of God. For you did not receive the spirit of slavery to fall back in fear, but you have received the spirit of adoption as sons by whom we cry, Abba, Father, or Daddy. That's what that word means. That's right. <laughs> I'm, I'm, I'm like, let the children come to me. Let's go. I'm not Jesus. Hebrews 4, verse 16. It says, let us then with confidence draw near to the throne of grace. I, I, I want you to get this. That throne is overwhelming. I'm not trying to downplay the glory of God. I'm trying to rise up your faith in his sacrifice and the grace that you have that covers you. 
to go like children with arms stretched out wide, to not shrink back because you're focused on your ability or whether you can or cannot measure up, but to look to him who says, I've measured up for you now, come. Like this is what God's drawing us into. This is what he's provided for us at the cross and through the resurrection. Don't, like the only reason anyone shrinks back is either because they're not trusting in the all-sufficient blood of Christ or they don't really care about being in his presence. Now that could be very real. Do you even care to run to him? Do you want to see his glory? Do you want to be engulfed in your sonship? Do you, to know him and to be known by him, to walk with him, to sit with him, to interact with him throughout the day, to, to, to be overwhelmed and drawn out and drawn into the glory of God, to say, show me your glory and to accept your identity as a child of God? Or do you think you're just not worth it? Well, he said you were. Will you expect, accept that? In John 16, he says this, verse 7. Nevertheless, I tell you the truth. It is to your advantage that I go away. For if I do not go away, this is Jesus talking, the helper, which is talking about the Holy Spirit, will not come to you. But if I go, I will send him to you. Hear me. God's presence, this is going to be a radical thought, okay? God's presence is more available to us now than it was to Moses then. God's spirit, God's presence is more available to you today than it was to King David, who wrote most of the Psalms. You ever thought about that? David longed for the day that we experience now. As J.D. Greer put it, the spirit inside of you is better than Jesus beside of you. Even for the disciples who walked with Jesus, his presence was right there. Did you know that he's closer to you? That you have more access to God Almighty now than the disciples did who walked with him during his three-year ministry. Because you have access to his spirit in you, that's the reason he went to the cross and went to the Father. That's what he's talking about. When he says, I tell you the truth, it's to your advantage that I go away. For if I don't go away, the helper or the spirit of God or the encourager, the counselor, however you want to interpret that, will not come to you. But if I go, I will send him to you. The spirit inside you is better than Jesus beside you. Now, the disciples also got that spirit later, right? So we see that, but this is the power of it. Again, Matthew 27, the veil was ripped. The separation made, or sorry, the separation was torn in two. 1 Corinthians 3, 16, Paul's speaking to the Corinthian church. Do you not know that you are God's temple and that God's spirit dwells in you? You're walking holy of holies. Y'all don't believe me, do you? This is the, Ephesians 4 paints another picture of the universe, the church as a whole, the body of believers as a group of people, like living stones founded upon God's word. It's like a foundation is God's words, the apostles' teaching. Jesus is the cornerstone that orients everything. And then we are his people, this house. We house, we become the very dwelling place for the presence of God upon the earth. 
access. And the last two verses of Exodus give us some insight into how we are to live and operate as his people, and that is by giving his presence uh, our undivided attention. And so again, these are types and shadows. This is Old Testament stuff, man. Like this is all pointing to a day that we experience now. Now, it'll be in fullness when he comes. It's not even, it's still limited because we're in the already not yet still, right? We're in between Christmas Eve and Christmas morning. You tracking? But have you plumbed the depths of what is possible in your experience and love and prayer life and worship with him in this life now? Or are you shrinking back because you feel like you're either not hungry or not good enough? This is the power. So Exodus 40, verse 36, last two verses. It says, throughout all their journeys, whenever the cloud was taken up from the, over the tabernacle, the people of Israel would set out. So when the cloud hovered over the tabernacle, um, they stayed, right? But if it was taken up, then they were like, okay, we're following where God goes. Verse 37, but if the cloud was not taken up, then they did not set out until the day it was taken up. For the cloud of the Lord was on the tabernacle by day and fire was in it by night in the sight of all the house of Israel throughout all their journeys. Again, this is the idea, where you go, I go. Where you stay, I stay. When you move, I move. Children have a heightened awareness of their vulnerability, but that also comes with a heightened awareness of presence, of protection, of where he is. If God is for us, who can be against us? If God is with us, I want you to get this, this Christmas. That's what this is. He's come to us. Remember Lucy Pevensey from Chronicles of Narnia? You remember this? C.S. Lewis, children's book. There's a scene where she's about to be attacked by an entire army, and she confidently pulls out this little dagger, which incidentally was a Christmas gift to her. Anybody knows, can geek out with uh, Chronicles of Narnia with me. Um, and, and the enemy laughs at her little dagger, but then she raises it confidently. And as she does, the great lion Aslan, which represents Jesus, steps out from behind her. And the enemy army is terrified, and they're consumed in this river that was much like the Egyptians were consumed in the Red Sea. And the point there that Lewis is trying to articulate to us in that story and to our children is that you are Lucy. We are Lucy. Your strength, your courage, your confidence, your joy is all found in the presence of the Lord. And some of you may still be thinking, well, again, I'm not really getting this. Like, like isn't God always with us? Again, like, isn't he omnipresent or always present? Like, is, why, do I have to, is there some, why do I have to do anything intentional? Well, he is, he is omnipresent. But it's also clear that throughout the scriptures, there is this difference between his omnipresence and his manifest presence. I've heard it described like children who know their daddy loves them, but they experience it when he hugs them. Think about that. Like right now, I've got three kids, and many of them downstairs, I think, all of them are downstairs. <laughs> uh, and, and they know that I'm their daddy. They know right here, they know that they're loved. And if you ask them, they're going to tell you it's a deep truth. I am the son of John Allen the daughter of John Allen. Like they know that. They know that I am their daddy, cognitively. It's a deep truth that I'm determined to just spend the rest of my life getting in their souls though, that even when they're apart from me, they're loved by me. But what if I never hugged them? 
Like, what if I just said, you know, when I come home, I stand at a distance and say, I love you guys, but stay away. Right? Sometimes when they're sick, I kind of am like that. But, but seriously, like, what if I never hugged them? What if I just said it, but I never did anything about it? There's something imparted when I pick them up and I squeeze them and I spin them around. I tell them, you're my daughter, you're my son, and I love you, and I squeeze them. There's a moment. It's one thing to know me as father up here, but it's another to experience their identity as my children when I pick them up and I squeeze them tight. There's power in that. I recently had a pretty severe uh, shoulder surgery. Many of you guys know about And Just a few days ago, my physical therapist gave me a new movement to work on, and it was this motion, Right? And the, the, the physical therapist was kind of like, now this is going to be new. It's probably going to hurt. You're probably going to be really weak. And so, like, we're going to take this at one step at a time. It's going to be a little. And I was like, Rah, you know. And he was like, you don't seem to have lost any strength there at all. It's like, that hurt? And I'm like, no, I realized I've been doing this even in my sling. I've been hugging my children. Like, I've just been hugging, hugging, hugging. And so, I, like, I had all of that strength because I'm, I realized that, you know, I'm not recommending this, by the way, for anybody doing rehab, but. <laughs> like, <clears throat> it, this was a motion. It's that hugging motion. Even when it hurt, I, it was just my priorities. You know why? Because they need to know deep down in their soul, not just their mind, that daddy loves them. They need to experience it in a manifest way. They need to know whose they are. They need to experience the love of the father, not just hear about it. Like my Youngest daughter isn't going to look at me hugging Adrielle and go, wow, God really loves me. She needs to be hugged too. This is what God has done for us in Jesus Christ. He's provided an access to his presence to be known and to know. Tim Keller put it like this. The only person who dares wake up a king at 3 a.m. for a glass of water is a child. We have that kind of access. So this Christmas, will you let him draw you into your sonship? Will you embrace your status as a child? This is how we push back darkness. This is what we celebrate at Christmas. It's the confidence that Aslan is with us. It's an invitation to great purpose, and it's fueled by his great presence and power. There's nothing boring about real Christianity. Nothing. Like, if you think Christian life is boring, then you've completely missed or probably ignored this particular invitation. But all that can change this Christmas and this new year. And it's not just about what we do here on Sunday morning. This is about when you're riding in your car. This is about when you wake up. This is about before you lay your head down on the pillow to acknowledge his presence, to talk to him as he is your daddy and he's closer to you than your own skin. And if you have a bad relationship with your earthly father, this is your opportunity to let him redeem it because he truly is a good, good father. And he has covered the distance, split the veil. The invitation is there. My prayer for you this Christmas is that you would allow him to embrace you. Let's pray. 